Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Gospel of Mark chapter 6. And I was, uh, I was so happy. Let me, let, me, let me say it this way. I was blessed last week to not be here because Eric got to preach. <laughs> and I got to hear Eric's sermon. So I was blessed. I really was. Eric called me and he's like, hey, Oops, can you criticize, like, can you give me some, some, some constructive criticism on the sermon and stuff? So I listen to it, I'm like, no, I, I can't. <laughs> I was blessed by it, I don't know what to say. I mean, so uh, we're so blessed, as, as we all know, to have Eric um, at the drop of a hat. I called him up, I'm like, Eric, I can't make it. And so it's good training, too, you know, to be thrown in the fire like that. So, uh, but yeah, it was, it was uh, praise the Lord. Um, so we're back in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Verse 35, I did miss everything. I was, I was actually kind of bummed. I, I couldn't be here. And uh, next week, my whole family will be here too, so we're all excited. God willing. All right, Mark chapter 6. Let's go ahead and pray. We're going to be in verses 35 through 44. Mark chapter 6, 35 through 44. Let's pray though, and then we'll begin. Holy Spirit, we pray now for your help, for your illumination. We thank you that you do not... Leave us as orphans ever. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for your promise. Thank you that that you tell us that we can ask, we can knock, we can seek, and that you give us us good gifts. You're a good father to us, O Lord. And so uh, we pray now for your Holy Spirit. We pray that Christ would be lifted up, O Lord. Lift up Christ today. Please, please lift up the Son of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 6. Now, if you remember, uh, let's see, two weeks ago we were talking about... The same passage we're talking about when Christ feeds the 5,000 and, and, and we gave somewhat of an introduction. And if you recall, I said that unless you unless you see this first part and, and what, what Mark is telling us about Christ here, you're not going to fully appreciate what's going on when Christ turns around and feeds 5,000 people. And that's absolutely the case. And you'll see more of that today as far as how important it is to really figure out what the context is, what the background is, and, and what Mark specifically is telling us in light of what Christ is doing here. So here's 35. Um, let's, let's read 35 through 44. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Okay, so here's the thing. We're going to break this this sermon down in this way. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus is the greater Moses. Number two, we're going to see that Jesus is the greater Elisha. And number three, we're going to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. You remember two weeks ago, we were talking about how Jesus is the great shepherd of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, it uses the motif of the, of the, the great shepherd, or the good shepherd over and over and over again. And we saw that that is Christ. And so we're looking at that. What Mark is doing is he's extending this. He's extending this whole idea of Christ being these, this, these figures of the Old Testament on a grander scale, on a bigger scale. And there's no doubt by the end of this sermon, you're going to say, oh, I, I see this now. God willing. 
Um, number one, though, whenever you think about this feeding, this is one of the most popular stories that's out there. Whenever somebody's talking about the things of Christ. In fact, this is the only miracle that's, that's in every gospel. So if you remember in John, not everything Christ does is actually recorded for us. John tells us that if, 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 hey, if we were to record everything that Jesus did and taught when he was alive, we, the, all the books in the world would not be able to contain them. But so, so in other words, they have to be selective about what they put forward, what they write down. And so every single, this is the only miracle that is found in every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's significant. And every writer re- recognizes it. This is a huge situation. And most of the time when you're talking, I mean, I bet one of these cheesy paintings has something about Jesus feeding five. I don't see it, but you know, a lot of times that's the case, right? It's, it's one of these things that are really front and center. All the kids books have them. And, and it's a very important thing. However, here's the thing. It's when you actually, when you actually dig in and see kind of what the backdrop would look like, it's anything but bucolic and pastoral and pleasant and peaceful and nice. And, and, and what I mean by that is number one, okay, where is Christ whenever he's Whenever he's about to feed these 5,000 people, where is he on the map? Is he in the north? Is he in the south? Is he by Jerusalem? That's always very critical when you're reading the gospel. Okay, he's in the north. And we've seen Christ hang out in the north for a long time now. Okay, so he's in the northern part of, of, of Palestine. He's up in Galilee. It's Galilean country. This countryside in Galilee is a stronghold for the zealot movement. If you remember who the zealots are, the zealots, Jesus has someone with, who's a disciple who's actually a zealot. The zealots were the, 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 uh, the they're almost like patriotic um, um, extremists, I think would be the way. When I say patriotic, I'm talking about a Jewish patriotism to the extreme, where they're going into these mobs and these crowds and they're stabbing people. Anything Hellenistic, anything Greek, they want to tear down, they want to destroy. These guys are a fierce group of people and they, they, they hide out in the northern part of Galilee, in these countrysides. Um, Judas the Galilean, Acts 5. It talks about in Acts 5 whenever James or John and Peter are arrested. And um, in fact, turn there, check this out. This is pretty cool. So Acts chapter 5, verse 37 says this. So this is Gamaliel. Gamaliel is, is using this man, Judas of Galilee. Judas of Galilee is a leader of the Zealot Party in AD 6, the year 86. So by the time Christ is walking here, it's probably AD 25, AD 28, AD 30, somewhere around there. So in AD 6, so let's say 20 years before Christ is there in the countryside, there was this man named Judas of Galilee in verse 37. And Gamaliel says, this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. He was a zealot revolutionary. He perishes. Um, Before Judas happens, though, before Judas comes around, there's stiff resistance against Herod the Great. Remember, we've talked about Herod. Herod the Great is, of course, in league with Rome, in league with with the Hellenists, with the Greek guys. And so the zealots do not like anything about Herod. They don't like Herod the Great. They don't like Herod's sons. And so when Herod the Great dies and the the, the, the tetrarchs, the four, including uh, Herod Antipas, who we saw like three weeks ago, whenever they rise to power, the zealots are trying to go after these guys. 
Okay. Also, Josephus says that this part of Galilee, he praises or commends this part of Galilee for its stiff resistance against Roman invasion in 67, 68. So eventually in the year 70 AD, there's this, this catastrophic, massive wiping out of Jerusalem and Palestine by the Roman army. And Josephus says it was in this northern part, in this countryside of Galilee, that gave strong resistance against the Roman army. Um, so this is, this is a hotbed for for uh, for extremism when it comes to this 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 radical political exercise of the day that's the climate so when Christ goes here check this out all right this is this is if you remember back here um, in verse so look at 33 the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran together there to that ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them Okay, we look at that, and you could look at it, and you say, hey, they're just excited, man. They're excited. Christ is doing miracles. Christ has been feeding people. And we have seen that environment. We've seen that intensity from from these people that are like, hey, wherever Christ goes, I want to be there. And so they're running, and and, and yeah, okay. But when you read what's going on with the 5,000 in light of all the other Gospels, so if you turn, for instance, to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, look what happens. In John's account of what, what's going on here when Christ is feeding the 5,000. This is the part where right after Christ feeds them, what do they do? In verse 15, John chapter 6. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. Who's trying to make him king? These zealot revolutionaries are trying to make him king, right? They need they need somebody to spearhead this. They need somebody to lead the charge against these against these 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 wicked, evil, pagan Greek guys that are in, in Romans. So they see Christ and they're saying, hey, we want this guy to lead the movement. So they're trying to grapple him. So Jesus, again, perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Because that's not what he is. Right? He is not some kind of zealot chieftain, some kind of zealot politician guy who's going to spearhead some kind of overthrow of the government. That's not what Christ came to do. That's what they want him to do. That's who's here. And a lot of times also note this. Every single gospel account mentions that this is a group of only men. Only men. What does that tell us? These guys are warriors, man. These guys are these guys are armed. They're soldiers. They're ready for action. They leave the children and the, and, the, and, the, and the women. They're not there. They're ready for war. Very interesting. But here's what Christ does. He flips all of this. And if you notice, when I said, number one, Christ is the greater Moses here. What Christ is doing, he's saying, I am not some kind of radical zealot chieftain or political revolutionary. I am the greater Moses. Now, how is Mark telling us this? Look at verse 31. Look at where they are. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place. Your translation might say desolate. Come away for, to, uh, for a while to a desolate place. Verse 32. They went away in the boat to a secluded. The same word is for desolate, secluded place out in the wilderness. 35 and 36. Look at 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate. It's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the uh, surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. What's the, what's the implication there? There's nothing to eat here. There's no villages here. They're out in the middle of nowhere. What does that remind us of? Moses. Whenever Moses, after they cross through the Red Sea, where are they? They find themselves in the middle of nowhere in a desolate place. In the wilderness, in the desert. But also, 
Look what you have in 37 and 38. You have overwhelming needs. You have a very serious problem here. You don't have any food, and people need food. 37 says, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give? They, all they, think about it. All those people, and all they have are five loaves of bread and two fish. You have 5,000 people here. That's not going very far. So they're in a significant situation. And if you remember, turn with me to Numbers, just so you can see this parallel between Christ here and Moses. So Numbers chapter 11 tells us this. Numbers chapter 11, 13 through 22. So the people go and they're complaining to Moses, just like these disciples, right? So the disciples are like, how how is this going to work? We don't have any food. What are we going to do? They go to Moses. Moses, of course, Moses not being Christ. Moses turns around and he's like, yeah, God, what are we going to do? We're in a mess here. We're not in a good spot. We need, we are, we are going to starve. We need food. Verse 13, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this burden because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. This is why I said Christ is the greater Moses. Because Christ is not in the wilderness wringing his hands and pulling his hair out and saying, God, what are we going to do? The disciples are saying they don't have food. What, are, what what's going on here? Um, also, if you look, and, and, and this goes on. Look at look. If, if it's eventually um, God turns around and says, "Okay, I am going to feed you." In verse nineteen, he says, uh, "He says you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month." Until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? What God is criticizing them of right here is their lack of faith. Christ in a sense is doing that. He's going to do that with the disciples. God does that with Israel. God does that with Moses. And and he says, okay, you guys want to complain and say, hey, we're starving. We don't have any food. We want to go back to Egypt. We never should have left. And he's he's critical because God is the one that brought them into this situation. God is the one that's going to provide for them. And they don't trust that. And so that's what Christ is trying to teach these disciples. Christ is saying, listen, guys, God can provide. That's the one of the one of the morals. If you want to put it that way about this whole thing is God is God is telling his disciples, hey, this is the point he provides. He's going to take care of you. Christ is going to take care of you. Christ is teaching the disciples that notice who knows about the feeding the 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 5000 men there. They don't realize what's going on. The disciples do. This is a lesson for the disciples. But also notice this. How does Christ tell them to line up? How does Christ tell them to sit? How does Christ, you know what I mean? So this is back in in, in Mark chapter 6, where he says, he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. They sat down in groups. This is not random. This reminds you of when Jethro comes along to Moses and he says, you got to split these guys up into groups of hundreds and fifties. This is too much. But then what's significant, what's really neat about this is that when you look at some of the, um, the, the, the writings and the literature around the time of Christ, there's this community called Qumran. Qumran. That's where you find the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's where the, the Dead Sea Scrolls came from, this, this group called the, the, the uh, Qumran community. Well, in their scrolls, they have this, they, they, they have 
the messianic banquet, when Christ is going to come, when he's going to return and he's going to dine with his people, when he's going to have a banquet for his people, they're going to, he's going to subdivide the people into groups of hundreds and fifties. And if the Qumran community recognizes that, they're not the only community that sees that. That was in the air. This idea that when the Messiah comes, he's going to subdivide the people into hundreds and fifties because that's the pattern you see with Moses. And so when Christ comes and he does that, that should be a signal for those who are living at the time that, hey, is this the Messiah? Has, has he arrived? And so this is a foretaste of the banquet to come. But you see that Christ is making the point that, yes, I am the Messiah. He has come. Okay, so he is the one who is the greater Moses. Now, here's the thing, though. How... You know, there's so much more here. You could preach, I'm telling you, a whole sermon just on this. Just on Christ being the greater Moses. But just to summarize, okay, you're talking about a new exodus. When Christ comes, you're talking about people being delivered from their bondage to sin. When, when think about the evil that's pervaded the culture of the time of Palestine at the time, all these, all these um, the demonic realms and even coming into the synagogue. And so when Christ is coming in and he's subduing these enemies... He's delivering his people. That's a new exodus. That's a new deliverance. Case number two, there's a new conquest. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. We've seen that so much in the Gospel of Mark. What a Christ's purposes for coming to earth is maybe the purpose to destroy the work of the devil. This is a new conquest. When I say conquest, think about Joshua and the boys going into Canaan, going into the promised land. And what do they do? They start exterminating everybody. They're wiping everybody out. Why? Because of the evil in the land. It's not because God is cruel or wicked or evil. It's the opposite. God is good. God is righteous. And he's using them to go and purge the land of its, of its, of its demonic activity. Christ is doing that here. When Christ comes to earth, there's a new conquest. And it's not so much with, 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 with knives and what are they using back in the day, Tim? What are they, those big, what kind of weapons is Joshua using? I don't know, spears, of course, maybe a slingshot. You see some of that, bows, I don't know. But you see, that's not what Christ is doing. How is he conquering these, these enemies? He's conquering them spiritually. He's conquering them through the gospel. He's putting to death these things through the gospel. And he's continuing to do that through us. That's, that's what we're seeing, right? In every, think about the, think about the home life, man. Think about, you know, you think about your average neighborhood and I'm, we all know Clovis. Clovis is, is, is no city of saints. You think about what your neighborhood looks like and you start thinking, imagining what's going on in these homes. There's a spiritual darkness in most homes in Clovis, New Mexico. It's pervasive, right? A spiritual darkness, a weightiness of evil that's just hanging in every single house. And so when the gospel comes forth and the gospel goes and saves somebody from that house, that house becomes a beacon of light. That house begins to change. That house is no longer this, this, this realm of darkness. Something happens, right? That's the gospel. That's what Christ is doing. So it's a new conquest. And then we're going to see it's, we're going to eventually see it's a new Passover, right? That's the big meal of the Old Testament here. The Passover, the lamb, but who's our Passover? Who's the lamb? In the New Testament, it says that Christ is our Paschal lamb. He's the Passover lamb. John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God. So you're seeing all these things, the new exodus, the new conquest, the new Passover, bringing about uninterrupted fellowship in God's kingdom. That's what Christ came to do. That's what the Passover signified. That's what the sacrifices signified. And here Christ is saying, here I am. I've I've come to do that. 
Um, number two, he's the greater Elisha. And this is even clearer from this passage. So if you think about Elisha, okay, Elisha was, who is Elisha? First of all, he's a northern prophet. Where's Jesus? He's a northern prophet. Jesus, Galilee, he's from the north. That's where, right? Elisha is a northern prophet. Elisha is different from Elijah, right? How are they different? Well, Elisha is the protege of Elijah. Elisha got twice the power that Elijah had. Why? Because he saw Elijah ascend into heaven on a whirlwind. Goes up, he sees that, and because of that, he receives twice the power. What's kind of nice, side note, is uh, in Acts chapter 1, when Christ ascends and the disciples are standing there and they see him ascend, What's that supposed to, what is that, right? That's like Elisha seeing Elijah and realizing, hey, if I see this, I'm going to receive a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. The disciples see Christ ascend. What do they receive? What does Christ tell the disciples? You will do works greater than I myself have done. They see him ascend. The disciples have twice the power in assist, right? If you can use it that way, because Christ is giving them his Holy Spirit. But here we're seeing that Christ is the greater Elisha. Turn with me to 2 Kings. It's a very, it's a very uh, I, I wouldn't say obscure because it, it's, it's a striking passage, but it's one of those passages you read through and you're like, oh, that's, 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 that's neat. But then you just kind of move on. But, but stop and, and, and really think about what's going on here, and you're going to see the parallel immediately. This is what Mark is telling us. This is what Christ is telling us. 2 Kings 4. Forty-two through forty-four. Look at this. Second Kings four, forty-two through forty-four. Now a man came from Baal Shalishah and brought the man of God. That's Elisha. Bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And by the way, in the Gospel of John, it tells us what kind of bread Jesus is going to break for the five thousand. It's barley bread. Here you have barley bread. 20 loaves of barley bread, fresh ears of grain in a sack. And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. Elisha says, give them to the people that they may eat. Verse 43, his attendant said, what? Well, I said this before, a hundred men. But he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he said it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of God. It's the exact passage, right? It's the same thing. So what's going on here? Of course, with Christ, Christ has five loaves. These guys have 20 loaves. But notice who is the one. So Elisha says, hey, you give them something to eat. Elisha himself is not the one giving them the bread. The attendant does. The attendant goes, gives them the bread. Also, both Christ and Elisha intensify the crisis. You see that? So when the the crisis is, is, hey, we don't have enough food for the people. They intensify the crisis by saying, hey, you know what? So what? Go feed them. What do you mean go feed them? We don't have enough food, right? Did you not hear us? We don't have enough. It's like, ah, go feed them anyways. Well, how can we, right? How can we feed them? If, and so the point is, is they intensify it to make it a point that says, hey, have faith. Can God provide or not? God is going to take care of these people. Have faith. In both accounts. So Elisha is saying, hey, believe, what's Elisha's point here? Elisha, has, he says it so well because he says what? He says, give them to the people that they may eat for thus says the Lord. Right? The Lord has said it. We can trust in him. When we say, when Christ says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. You know, you can look at that and some people, and, and, and not wrongly so, you say, hey, that means it's to provide for us spiritually. Provide for our spiritual needs when you, when you use the word bread there. But also our physical needs. 
Christ says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else is going to be applied to you. You're going to have what you need. Remember in this passage on anxiety, usually the, the, the heading is the passage on anxiety, the cures for anxiety on the Sermon on the Mount. Where he's talking about, you know, the, the, the lilies of the field have this and the birds of the air. They don't, they don't worry about where, where their next meal is going to come or how they're going to clothe themselves. Why? Because God takes care of them. That's what Christ is trying to teach his disciples. God's going to take care of you. And in, in reference to us, right, that's what God is still teaching us through this passage. There's a reason why Mark wrote this down. It's not like, it's not like Mark was writing it down for, the, for the, the 12 disciples who were there. They saw that. He's writing it down for us. So that we can look at it and we can glean from it and we can, in our own lives, realize God is going to take care of us. He's going to provide. Even when it looks insurmountable and and the expectations are out of control and and we don't know what to... God is saying, listen, who's in control here? Right? I, I got you. It's okay. Thirdly, Christ is the promised Messiah. And so this is kind of the totality of all the things that we've already seen. So we've seen he's the good shepherd of the Old Testament. We've seen he's the greater Moses. We've seen he's the greater Elisha. And even before that, we've seen that he's the greater Joshua. He's the one that comes in and conquers the foes. We've seen that he's the greater David previously. And so all of these, what what Mark is doing is he's he's trying to overwhelm us with the weight of evidence that comes from the scriptures, the Old Testament, so that when we're reading through here and we're seeing the life of Christ, we're recognizing that there is no denying it. It's unmistakable that he is the Messiah. And the disciples should be realizing it also. What's nice is the disciples are starting to, they're not there yet, but they're figuring things out. They're coming along. And, and it's because of this weight. Remember Luke 24, 27, when Jesus is on the way, on the road with the, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus? And it says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures are saturated with Christ. Saturated. In fact, it talks about in the New Testament how you don't even need. Now, we're all grateful for the New Testament. But you don't need the New Testament in order to be saved by faith in the Messiah. There's enough there in the Old Testament to be saved by faith in the Messiah. It's all there. And then, of course, we saw last week, two weeks ago, Psalm 23. So if you look at Mark chapter 6, look at Mark chapter 6. And I pointed out that there's a reason why Psalm 23 talks about green grass. Verse 39, and he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And in Psalm 23, it says, he makes me lie down on green grass, the pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Next week, we'll see that Christ leads his disciples Along still waters. They're going to be in a boat and they're going to be terrified in a storm and everything else. And Christ comes along and he stills the waters. So it's the, it's, it's the, like the, the, the legal term is the preponderance of evidence. Like it's overwhelming. You can't deny it at this point. If you do deny it, that's why if you, I mean, if you ever talk to a Jewish man, a Jewish woman, and you're trying to, you're, man, if you just, by God's grace, can just point out some of these things, right? That's what Paul's doing. When he goes into the synagogue, what do you think Paul's preaching about? He's preaching about this. He's preaching to Jews. He's saying, listen, our Messiah has come. 
Here, how can you deny that he that he's coming? That's why you do see persecution that happens to Paul, but you see a lot of Jews coming into the faith. You see Nicodemus, right? Even Nicodemus, he's like, man, I can't deny this. This is overwhelming. It's not it's not quite exactly how we thought, you know, as, as Pharisees, but I I have to admit, yeah, I'm seeing it by God's grace. Paul the apostle, right? Eventually, he's going to see it. But Psalm 23 talks about the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack. What, what's going on in the wilderness here? Christ is teaching them, you shall not want. You shall not lack. I'm going to take care of you. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Christ is saying, that is me. I am that shepherd who provides you with these things. I prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. That's the Lord's Supper. That's what Christ has done for us. On the Lord's Supper, we, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about how you proclaim. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, right? We proclaim the Lord's death. Who are we proclaiming that to? Everyone around us, the angels who are in our midst right now, the good angels, the evil angels, the demonic. In the presence of our enemies, Christ prepares this banquet for us. Our cup, I mean, our our head overflows with oil. The Holy Spirit runs down. We're, We're taken care of. Lastly, though, and part of this idea of the Messiah here is the very last section of this, this feeding of the 5,000. It says he took the five loaves and the two fish in verse 41. So after they sit down, they're sitting on the, on the green grass. 41, they took, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And a lot of time people make out, hey, that looks like the Lord's Supper here. That's what's going on. Other people will say, well, that's just the custom for every Jewish meal. And the prayer that Christ would have prayed is this. Praise be to you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. That was the typical prayer before you had a meal in the the days of Christ. That you're praising God specifically for the bread, even if it wasn't bread. You know, that's that's because bread was precious. Um, but here's the thing. So verse 41 is talking about, right? So he breaks the bread. He give, he blessed the food, broke the loaves. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among all. This is the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. The physical needs of the people are satisfied. But Christ is not. Christ is using the physical needs that are being met to point to spiritual realities. And we've seen that with miracles. When Christ heals people, it's not supposed to stay as like this physical blessing upon the person. It's supposed to point our minds to something beyond just the physical. Because every person he heals, they turn around, they end up dying or getting sick later on. I mean, that's not the point of the miracles. The point of the miracle is to point us to something else. The same thing is going on here with the feeding. The physical needs that are taken care of point us to the spiritual the spiritual reality that God takes care of our needs spiritually. Physically also, absolutely. He does. And I know we always have the extremists with the, with the health, wealth, prosperity stuff that says if you have enough faith, you're good. that's not what's going on here. It's just to say God is going to take care of you. That might mean you can, be, you can be broke, you can be out of food, but guess what? He will still provide. He will still take care of you in some way. Right? So he's taking care of us. Number two, though, look, how many baskets did they pick up? 
How does this start out? You remember how this whole trip starts out, right? How do they, what are they doing in the north? Christ is trying to get these guys away. <laughs> it's amazing, right? He's trying to find a place where these guys can just go rest. Christ isn't out here looking for these zealot mercenaries, man. He's looking for a place for his disciples to take a little break. Because they're hungry. They don't even have time to eat. It says right here in verse 31, Christ says, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not have they did not even have time to eat. So they go to this place, they're like, Man, finally we get to eat these five loaves and two fish. That's enough for twelve. But then five thousand come along, and you can imagine they're like, Oh, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I thought we were going to get to rest and eat. And now, not only do we not get to rest and eat, but now our bread and our our fish, they're going to go out. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they were okay with that, right? Um, But, you know, here's the thing. How many, look at this in verse 43. It's a a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful touch. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. Isn't that nice? What's Christ telling them? I didn't forget about you guys, right? I'm going to take care of you too. Now you get to eat. Now you get to rest. And so, and then lastly in 44, there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. And of course, this again demonstrates that, that, that God's provision is not hindered by numbers, by circumstances, by things in our lives. The way that God provides, it's not like God's like, hey, I can take care of you as long as this as long as it doesn't get too overwhelming as long as it you know it's it's like it's you know the application here is really nice because when you're talking about what's going on here again the whole thing is for the disciples and for us coming after the disciples because the 5000 don't know what's going on the disciples realize it but also notice this okay the disciples what is best for the disciples is not always the easiest and we can say the same thing. From the disciples' perspective, what would be best for them is they get to the place, nobody bothers them, they get to eat, they rest, they have a break, and that's that. But God sees it differently. God says, no, no, no. What's best for you is when you're on the verge of about to take a rest and about to finally get to eat, right before that happens, an inrush, a, a, a torrent of, of, of bloodthirsty human beings are going to come forth and they're going to disrupt your rest and you're not going to get to eat. That's what's best for you. And you're like, well, I, I, don't, I don't like that at all. Of course not, right? But what do we do? We trust in the sovereignty of God. We resign to His will. The disciples here, ultimately, they, they, they should be looking at this, and we should be looking at those things in our life as saying, hey, resign to God's will. He knows what's best, and ultimately, this works out better for them. Why? Because what is the purpose of life? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How are we to glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. But here's the thing. Here's what it says in Colossians. It says, God is working in us to become more like Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of life. To become more like Christ. How are the disciples to become more like Christ? They are to be put in tough circumstances that weans them from their flesh, that weans them from the world, from from their own desires, so that they turn around and they learn to serve each other, serve others, even when they're hungry, even when they're tired. Why? Because... In like a year or two years from this very moment, Christ is not going to be with them anymore. Right? They're going to be the ones that are doing this. Now, Christ's Holy Spirit, of course, the Holy Spirit will be sent forth by Christ. They won't be without Christ in a sense. But you know what I'm saying. They need to know what, how to do this. They need to be spiritually trained, spiritually mature. 
And that is every single one of us. You know the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And we said this at the men's training, you know, for the officers. And it's like, hey, these are, these are the qualifications to be an elder and to be a deacon. And you're like, whew. Good thing I don't want to be an elder or a deacon, man, because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to pursue any of that, right? I don't, want, I don't want to, that life's not for me. Those qualifications, all that is, those are marks of a mature Christian. That's what they are. So regardless of whether or not you're an elder or a deacon, you should be striving for those marks, for those, for those attributes, for those characteristics. That should be us, right? And in order to get there, there's a lot of spiritual training that's involved. And even when you are there, right, there's a lot of spiritual training involved because we're still not at the ultimate goal, which is to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ perfectly. That's why even Paul himself says, I haven't achieved what I aimed at, what I'm aiming for. I haven't achieved it yet. But number one, as far as application goes, Jesus ministers to the needs of the peoples through the disciples. That's what Christ, that's what Elisha did. That's what Christ is doing here, right? The goal is to feed the 5,000. How are they, how is Christ going to feed the 5,000? He's going to use the disciples. Now he could have, and, and think about this. I mean, could Christ, you've seen Christ, we've seen Christ do miracles. I mean, amazing miracles. Um... He calmed storms. Could Christ have technically made bread appear on the plates of every single person there? Yes. Just right before, boom, right? That could have happened. He doesn't. What does he do? He says, no, you feed them. You go and you do it. You're the, you're, you need to bring the bread, you know, whatever that looks like. Take it to them. Clean it up. All that stuff. You do it. Christ tells us to do the same thing. That's the beauty of, of Christianity. It really is. We all have purpose. We all have a goal. We are alive today for a reason. For a reason. Otherwise, look, right, what's what's the reason why God has placed you here? Why 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 you're alive? Remember Paul, Paul's like, hey, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, but it's better for, for you that I remain on earth so that I can continue doing this this ministry, right? But the same goes for every single one of us. Every single one of us has ministries, have ministries and has a ministry, at least, at least in the home, at least with our children, children, at least, you know, even in the sphere of, of I don't know, learning catechism and, 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 and all, whatever you do in your life, whatever we do in life is a ministry in a sense. It has to be, it has to be right. Whatever you put your hand to, you can do it for the glory of God. And in fact, you're called to do it for the glory of God, right? And in doing so, what's going on? You are advancing the kingdom of God. You're doing, Christ is is extending the work that he begins here through you. Whatever that looks like. That is the glory of being a Christian. That you have a purpose, you have a goal. Not one single person here is insignificant. I don't care what you do. I don't care what God has called you to do. I don't care if, you know, some people are, are, are homebound and they can't even get out of bed. That person is not insignificant because the prayers of the saints, that is that prayers of the saints move mountains, Christ says. You don't know. I mean, we don't, we, all of it is important, right? All of it's important. So whatever you do, just know that, that God is using you. That's the beauty of all of this. And even if no one sees it, most of the time, no one sees it. That's even better because God sees it then. So whatever you have going on in life, know that these disciples, they're, they're handing out bread. But what they're doing is significant. They don't realize how significant it is. 
They don't realize that, you know, for the next 2,000 years and beyond, people are going to be reading about these disciples going and serving these people and from that be encouraged by it and say, oh, okay, cool. God used them, God uses us. So whatever it is, waiting tables, whatever, that's what they're doing. It's all important. It's all significant. And also, and lastly, what all of this demonstrates is that it's, you know, the, the, our needs in life, if you think about what we have in life or what we don't have in life, it's, 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 ask yourself this, okay, what do you, and I, you know, think about it, don't just give the correct answer, but really, what do you think you, what do you think you deserve in life, right? What do you deserve? Like what, what, what are some things in life that you think, hey, I deserve these things? And then ask yourself the next question, right? Why do you deserve those things? And then when you look at it from that perspective, you realize, okay, I don't deserve anything good, right? Do I? I don't deserve anything good. I mean, can I really go back to God and say, hey, God, you know, I mean, because, hey, I I preached in Clovis. I mean, come on. I preached, I preached, I preached in, you know, I preach all the time, God. I, I mean, don't I deserve... No, right? You don't deserve anything. Why? Because apart from God's grace, I would have no desire to do anything for God whatsoever. I would have hostility in mind towards God. And even before that, so you're like, hey, so, so, well, I at least deserve a sunny day, right? I mean, come on, you can give me that. At least a sunny day. I don't deserve a sunny day. We don't deserve anything. We don't, we, when it comes down to it, every single thing in our life is a gift or blessing from God the Lord God. Everything. The food, the shelter, the car, whatever you have in your life, the dog, all of these things are things that God looks upon and He, in His grace, blesses us with, not because we deserve them, not because we're better than so-and-so or we haven't done this or we have done. He blesses us because He's kind. He's a good God. And in Romans 2, it talks about when he does that is so that we turn to him in gratitude and in thankfulness, realizing we don't deserve any of these things, but you've provided for us anyways. And so we can look at what Christ is doing here when he's feeding the 5,000. And that should be the mindset that Christ provides for us beyond what we, beyond what we deserve. Because we don't deserve anything. And then ultimately, the, the, of course, the ultimate way that Christ is going to provide for us, all of this is pointing spiritually. Spiritually. Because how is Christ going to provide for us spiritually? He himself, when he says, you know, the covenant that God makes with Abraham and they take the pieces and Abraham lines them up in two different rows. And that's the ancient Near East. Whenever you make a covenant with somebody in the ancient Near East is you would take this animal and you would, you would cut it apart and you would make a row with this bloody meat, you know, of this animal, this carcass. And you would walk down the middle of it. And when you walk down the middle of it, that's, that's, that's signifying that As you see this carcass, so will happen to me if I break this covenant. And so a deep sleep falls on Abram and he has a vision. He has a theophany of God walking between these carcasses. God himself makes a covenant with Abraham and says, Abraham, if I break this covenant, then I'm calling down curses upon my own head. As you see these carcasses, these dead carcasses, so will I be if I break this covenant to you, Abraham. And he promises Abraham a seed, blessings, and a land. And all of these are are summarized in Christ. Because here's what happens. Abraham breaks his side of the covenant. He's a sinner. He breaks it. 
So what happens to Abraham? He's calling down death upon his own head, curses upon his own head. Just as you see the carcasses. Abraham, that's going to happen to you. That's your, that's your lot, Abraham. But what do we see? That's not Abraham's lot. What do we see, right? We see Christ going to the cross. And Christ, in a sense, is saying, instead of Abraham or instead of you or instead of me, turning out like those carcasses because we're part of this covenant too. Christ says, instead of you dying, instead of you suffering the wrath of God, the penalty for sin, the wages of sin, I myself am going to go to the cross and call down curses upon my own head so that you can be spared those curses. That's what Christ does on the cross. All of this is culminating in that. All of this is leading up to that. That's the high mark of the entire gospel, right? Where you see Christ is the greater David. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Elisha. But ultimately, it's coming down to this. Christ is going to be our good shepherd by laying his own life down for the sheep. A sacrifice, a substitute, so that the sheep, the unruly, rebellious sheep can be spared, can be healed, can be delivered from the wrath of God. Because Christ is going to call down these curses upon his own head. And so all of this culminates with us saying, Lord, thank you for your blessings physically, materially. The fact that I've lived 37 years on life of life on earth. Man, when I was in my 20s, I remember thinking, there's no way God's going to kill me before I turn like 28, 29. Like there's no way I'm getting past my 30s. I tell people that. I remember, you know, telling people like, I, there's no way I'm living past 30, man. God's going to get me before. It's a, it's a miracle, right? If you're five years old, if you're six, if you're seven. We don't deserve a single breath of life on earth because of our sin. Yet look at us, right? We're able to not just have breath, but to actually have the desire to praise God and worship God and delight in God. And then when we die, guess what happens? We don't just get a little corner in heaven. We get to dine at the table with Jesus Christ himself. It's crazy. That's what Christ is showing here. And the disciples are picking it up. And by the end, all right, they're going to turn on Christ, but then they're going to repent and come back, as we saw Eric talk about last week, right? So that's got to be our life, always in remembrance of Christ, what He's doing for us physically, materially, the blessings, but ultimately spiritually. Let's pray. Oh Christ, we thank You today for for being our sacrifice, our substitute for going to the cross. Lord, what a privilege it is to even be able to speak to the very Christ who we're reading about right now and talking about, that that you were the very same Christ who walked on earth and fed 5,000 men from five loaves of bread and two fish. Lord, what a privilege it is to talk to the same Christ who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And here we have access to that same Christ, Lord. what What a privilege. And Lord, we just want to say thank you today. We thank you for, for, for sacrificing your life. We thank you for the sufferings you endured. And we thank you, O oh God, for, for providing for us every single day, Lord. We pray that not a mill would go by when we are thankful for the blessing of even a glass of water, a piece of bread. Lord, forgive us for taking these gifts for granted. We do thank you, O God, that you take care of your people so well, even in our sufferings, even in our wants. We know that even then you're working out something even better than a full belly. We do praise you, O God. Your ways are beyond our understanding, but we do know you deserve all praise. It's in Christ's name. Amen.